Would you turn with me to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9, beginning in verse 38. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly, I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. This morning we turn to the Gospel of Mark. We're in chapter 9, beginning at verse 38. And we are continuing this sermon series in uh, in the Gospel of Mark, uh, on the road with Jesus. As he's on the road, he's teaching his disciples, and we get to go with him on this road trip to ourselves become followers of this Jesus. And this morning, we begin with a little bit of context. If you were with us last week, you'll remember that back in verses 30 and 32, Jesus has told us the nature of his mission. Okay, he's already corrected our pride in verse 33 and 37. Our pride that's called us to service like himself. The nature of his mission is is a baseline, a standard that he has established. A theme has been set. And the theme that we ought to carry with us at each one of the texts, each one of the passages that we open up in the coming weeks, is the suffering of the Messiah. The death of of the Messiah, and the resurrection of the Messiah. That is the theme and the standard that is being held out for us. Jesus has explained to us the meaning of his mission. And he's told us this, and he's told his disciples this, but instead of having their lives transformed by faith and conformed to the proclamation of the Messiah, what do we see? We see the disciples bickering, We see their power grabs in ways that are more in line with the world than they are with the stated mission of the Christ. Now, before we get too down on them, let's remember, we are on the road with Jesus, and that puts us as peers with the disciples. In light of both Jesus' declaration about himself and Jesus' correction of his disciples, what Jesus does in our passage this morning is he offers two more corrections of his disciples. Jesus puts here before us two corrections uh, or warnings about the disciples' immature faith. Now, we ought to situate ourselves, right, as a people of immature faith, a people who are in need of correction, 
and in need of warning, perhaps even rebuke or even a call to faith this morning. In the first place, in the first part of our passage, verses 38 through 41, we see Jesus correct our pride and he calls us to recognize the service of others, right? And then, beginning in verse 42 through the end of our passage, he warns us against all forms of sin that might lead to our own destruction, as well as the destruction of others. So let's pay attention to this. Let's humble ourselves before the Lord this morning as we go to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, it would be easy to view this prayer and the end of the prayer of confession as a time to pray for me or the, whoever's preaching on that particular morning. But Lord, this is the prayer of a congregation. We're praying for us that you would open up our eyes, open up our minds, that your word would speak with a clarity and that you would bring us, we who are immature at best, to immaturity of faith, that your word would work in the midst of the congregation, that your spirit would be present to apply your word and nothing less to us for our transformation and your glory. Humble us, Lord. Remove our pride. Cause us to a renewed sense of confession and joy that in confession we receive, get to see all the more clearly and profoundly your grace and that from which you have rescued us. I pray that you would do this work in the midst of your church this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name, in your name, amen. We're going to begin with that first passage, all right? Please follow along with me. Let's pay attention to the words that are there together, nice and closely as we see Jesus correct pride in mission, all right? This, last week, we saw pride in a lack of, of service. This week, we're going to look at a, a particular kind of pride, a pride as we go about an activity for the sake of Jesus, or, or mission, or ministry. In verse 33, in last week's passage, the disciples were arguing amongst themselves about who is the greatest in their midst. And then, when that doesn't work out, and they're rebuked by Jesus, and Jesus says, well, the greatest in your midst, in light of the proclamation that he'd made about his own suffering, death, and resurrection, in light of that, the greatest in your midst, is he not the one who serves everyone? They're sufficiently rebuked, but then they go at it another way. And in their pride, they bind themselves together. Okay, we're all humble, Lord, and servants. But taken together, we are, let's admit, Jesus, superior to everyone else who is in mission. So we got a superior 12. It's as though they thought to themselves, look, no one of us can be greater than the other. At least we can be greater and distinct from everyone else who isn't a part of this inner circle of ministry as disciples closely following after Jesus day after day, entering the households with him, walking on the road with him. If they can't resolve who's the greatest among themselves, surely they can agree, at least they're Jesus' special disciples, right, together? At least they are the greatest together. Look at what the disciples saw. In our passage, in verse 38, they came to Jesus. Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons. Now, don't miss it. In your name. And we tried to stop him because he was not following us. 
But Jesus said, and he continues to rebuke them in three very specific ways. They saw a man casting out demons. More importantly, he was doing this in the name of Jesus. So that is, by Jesus' power and to Jesus' honor, this man is doing a good work. And it's working. And the disciples go out to rebuke that. How is that possible? What's going on here? Well, I think that our context, if we go a little bit further back in chapter 9, gives us a little bit of what's going on in the hearts of the disciples. Remember, the disciples had recently, back in chapter 9, verse 18, they had recently failed to cast out a demon. Back in verse 18, in the second half of that verse, it says, So I asked your disciples to cast out the demon, and they were not able. And now the disciples, they see a man, and they see that he wasn't a part of their little band, but he was being successful in the same sort of thing that they had failed in. And I'm, I'm just confident that there's something going on in the disciples saying, well, they can't do what we can't do. They shouldn't, or if he can do what we can't do, surely something's wrong, Jesus. Should we stop him so he can come and learn the lessons that you taught us? But he was casting out demons in the name of Jesus. From the position of the dependence that the disciples had been taught by Jesus in their little episode of failure. I think it's true for all of us, if we would just humble ourselves for a minute after making these observations, that success of others is often an irritant. The success of others can get under our skin on accident. We don't even have to like decide to be irritated. We just by nature in our pride unintentionally irritated at best. We're especially, especially in those little successful irritants in areas where we have recently failed. I mean surely they've got something wrong with themselves if they're successful in a place where we have failed. Jesus seems to be going on about the disciples' hearts with their questions, and he addresses them with four or three four clauses. He begins three statements with the word four, and he begins this in verse 39 with do not stop him for, for three reasons. Verse 39, do not stop him for, no one does a mighty work in the name, in, in my name, will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. There's not going to be a mighty work in the name of Jesus followed up by speaking evil about Jesus. Real simple four statement. Don't stop him because that's true. This teaching has a number of parallels throughout the Gospels and various teachings of Jesus. We could go to one implication from Matthew chapter 7, verse 16. It says, you will recognize them, that is the, the faithful ministers, the faithful believers in Jesus' name who are doing a, a good work in the midst of the people. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? This man is successfully casting out demons, by the way. He's not just successfully making a meal for people in the name of Jesus, right? And this, this is the sort of thing that is going to require Jesus to do a great work. 
And they successfully doing it in the name of Jesus. What ought they see? That's good fruit. So surely there's something good about the place from which it comes. The disciples were measuring themselves based on a sense of self-esteem and self-honor of position. And then they were comparing themselves by their own self-esteem, self-righteousness. They were comparing themselves to those who are on the outside of an inner circle. And they were unable to see the good works of Jesus. This is the good work of Jesus, who is ultimately the one by whom the demons were cast out. They were unable to see the good works of in Jesus' name and recognize them as such and judge the situation as such. They should have seen the fruit of the man's faithfulness and gone to Jesus and given thanks. Oh, Jesus, you are, you are powerful. In your name, we saw demons being cast out. They did that. They did that just a few chapters ago. They went back to Jesus, rejoicing when Jesus comes down from the Mount of Transfiguration. And, and the disciples tell them, Jesus, we saw demons being cast out in your name. Who were they impressed with? They were impressed with them. They were impressed with themselves. Because when they see another man doing it, they're not impressed. And they seek to rebuke him. Can they not see what Jesus can see? that this man was healing in the name of Jesus and will not turn around immediately after healing in the name of Jesus and speak ill of Jesus, Jesus says. Because of the man's faithfulness, two things are true. Those who suffer are being rescued and the Lord is receiving glory as the rescue is in his name. We're looking for that. We're looking for genuine rescue. And we're looking for the glory given to Jesus' name. And friends, that's the fruit that we are looking for around us. And when we see it, we ought to join in rejoicing in Jesus' name. That's, that's what humility looks like in the midst of the disciples of Jesus Christ. But it doesn't just give us one example of a reason why we shouldn't judge this man. But rather in verse 40, he gives us a second four. Four. The one who is not against us is for us. Now pause. Think about it for a second. That's a tough one. It seems a bit difficult to reconcile with some of Jesus' words elsewhere. Consider Matthew chapter 12, verse 30. In Matthew 12, 30, it says, Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. So which is it, Jesus? If you're not against me, you're for me, and if you're not with me, you're against me. Which is it? I think the key to understanding the distinction between those two valid teachings of Jesus is between the two sayings and what Jesus is doing or correcting in these two particular episodes. You, you Parents in this room know what I'm talking about, and kids do too, all right? And we've all been kids, so we can all identify with this. You, you know what it's like when a kid throws up something that a parent said in a different context, as if it applies to the current context? Like, I'm trying to tell you something here, kid. Shut up about throwing up things that I said in a different place when you didn't learn my lesson. In my face, in this current context, you have a pride problem, disciples, and you would do well to humble yourselves in front of people and be less quick to judge in this instance. 
And in the other instance, there's a warning. In Mark, Jesus is correcting the disciples' prideful superiority, right? That's, what, that's what's going on in Mark, is pride. But in Matthew, Jesus is teaching there is no middle ground when it comes to Jesus. So there's an approach that we ought to have our, our, to our own hearts, and that's what Jesus is addressing in Matthew. We ought to look at our own hearts, and we ought to say, hear this. If I am not with Jesus, I'm against him. Severe warning. The sort of warning that shows up at the end of our passage. Am I with Jesus, or am I not? And I think in our passage, this man who's out casting out demons in the name of Jesus, doing good for the sake and glory of Jesus, would have to say, I, I'm, I'm with Jesus. And I'm not one of the 12. I'm not walking with him day by day, but I'm with Jesus. But for those who look at others, our, our evaluation and our disposition ought to be, are they for Jesus? Are they for Jesus? Are they in the name of Jesus? So there's a disposition of warning to self against self-righteousness, and there's a disposition of humility toward others, again, against self-righteousness. This is what Jesus is often doing battle with, is self-righteousness in those who call themselves by his name. You can't be indifferent to him. To be indifferent is to be opposed. But when we look at others, we ought to have a patient and humble disposition. Thomas Cranmer writes it this way. While the principle of Mark 9 should govern the attitude of the church toward those without, the principle of Matthew must be the part of the church's preaching both to those without and within. There is a proclamation that we make that goes out as a warning to individual souls. And then there's a warning that comes to us about how we view others. So when we preach, we make it clear that there are those who hear us that you're either with Christ or you are against Christ. We are either partakers of grace or enemies of the cross. And when we see those who labor in the name of Christ, we take a far more humble posture, humbly observe and judge according to their fruitful labor. So really our question is this. Is Jesus glorified in ministry? Is Jesus glorified in the midst of of someone's labor, ours or theirs. Even if we would offer correction, even if we would offer some rebuke, some correction, some advice in the ministry of another, we ought to give thanks that we do so as a brother and sister in Christ. This ought to be our disposition toward others. This is the second reason why Jesus says, do not stop him. He gives us the third. The third is in verse 41. For truly I say... Whoever gives you a cup of water to drink, the easiest baseline of humble Christian service, whoever even gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. The point is simple. We don't have to belabor it. Even the most basic kindness, the simplest act of mercy in the name of Jesus and for the one who belongs to Jesus is an act that is in relationship to Jesus. And I think that, that if you think about what's going on in the, these four 
in these three, four statements of Jesus, he's saying, you're trying to mess with what is giving glory to me. You're trying to mess with something that is happening in relationship to me. The point is this. Our affiliations, our positions, our own reputation is not the main point. It's not the means by which we ought to esteem or judge ourselves or others. The main point is the sacrificial work of Jesus and the glorious name of Jesus. This is our standard of evaluation. You see, it's not self-righteousness. It's Christ's righteousness. It's Christ's glory. I've done a lot of thinking about this recently. What does the church need? And what do we need together? What would enliven us? What would wake us up from so much of our slumber? If we would care again, if we would remember and see what Jesus sees, that it's actually about Jesus. It doesn't matter whether we're getting it right. It doesn't matter how right we are. It matters how glorious, how gracious, how mighty and at work he is. And friends, if we get it right, that ought to humble us. Because what we're right about is that that's what he's done. And if we get it wrong, that ought to humble us. Because he's great and patient and merciful for us again. This is what we need. We need to see Jesus again. I believe that this applies to believers in our community. Can we have concerns about their methods? Can we look around us and see ministers of the gospel and say, you know, I have a question about the way that you're going about this ministry. We ought to question them no more than we're willing to question ourselves. Are we willing to turn the question that goes out about the speck in their eye, and turn it back on ourselves and be honest and say, Lord, do surgery on us. That isn't a statement, don't ask the question. It's do, because in asking the question of another, we turn it back on ourselves and say, God, do work. Do your refining work. Perhaps we can grow in and help others in a more faithful way in the name of Jesus. That ought to be our desire at all times, right? But it's from a position of comparison to Jesus, right? Are we comparing others to the way that we gather? Are we comparing others to the way that we scatter? Do we hold up the gospel rhythms and say, well, other people don't do the gospel rhythms the way that we do the gospel rhythms? Friends, if you know what I'm talking about, the gospel rhythms in partnership class, you know it's not about the rhythms at all. It's about the cross at the center. That's the measuring stick. The measuring stick for us is not the way that we are, but the Christ who suffered, who died, and who rose. How can we claim to accurately represent the humble, condescending, gracious work of Christ with contentious competition and cruel comparison? It doesn't work. It will turn back on us, and Jesus will have some four statements for us. Are there those who claim to minister in the name of Jesus, but have no genuine mighty work 
in the name of Jesus. Absolutely. And they are not the same as the man in our passage today. Our passage isn't about that. This man's fruit is in the name of Jesus Christ. And Christ bears beautiful fruit in their midst, even if it's simple glory and praise. What Jesus is correcting in this passage is tribalism, a sense of cliquishness that divides the work of Jesus into factions at war with one another. Another commentator writes this, the cliquishness which too easily affects a defined group of people with a sense of mission is among the worldly values which must be challenged in the name of the kingdom of God. Friends, for us today, in our particular congregation, and in the sort of tradition that we find ourselves in, this is a serious caution for us. Like, we ought to be humbled before today's passage, almost unlike any other that we've run across. I've heard it said along the way, and if I have to be honest, I, I think I might have said it a few times, I have a reformed understanding of the gospel, a particular understanding, that I believe to be a biblical understanding. But I have a hard time associating with reformed Christians. They're too judgmental and carry an air of being right about all doctrinal things. And that would be a problem if it were true of us. This would be an error that is fractious for the church. It's tribal for the church. In our labor to be doctrinally serious, with our long sermons and our wordy songs, right? In all of that labor to care about the things that the scriptures themselves have revealed, our attitude and our personal association must not be only with those with whom we agree or have a similar practice. That can cause an unnecessary sense of division and superiority. Because of our humility before Christ, like what all of our doctrines about grace are supposed to teach us, right? Because of our humility before Christ, we ought, that ought to create a humility about the way that we labor in the name of the one who what? Suffered? who died and rose for us. Friends, we don't do any of those three things with any actual effect, but Christ filled them up with his own effect. Lord, work in us a humility that is at the core of your gospel of grace. Friends, I feel like I could close in prayer and just let us sit there for a minute. But Jesus has some warnings. He's not done yet. He said four state, three statements, four statements that ought to warn us seriously. But he has more serious things to say, and I think we should pay attention. In the second half of our passage, Jesus warns against sin and temptation. The collection of sayings here likely aren't words that Jesus spoke immediately following that context. Uh, there in, in verses 38 through 41, they appear to be a short collection of Jesus' teachings that were spoken on a variety of occasions that the disciples would have had ingrained in themselves as they were on the road with Jesus. And Mark decides that as he's putting together this gospel for us, that he decides to insert these teachings right here to accentuate the seriousness of, of following after Jesus with a humble, single-hearted faith. There are dire consequences at hand. 
He's already spoken positively, and now he is going to allow Jesus' words to speak negatively and with warning. He's putting into stark relief the dangers of harming others and doing harm to our own souls. So let's listen for a moment. In, In this passage, we see that there's an initial warning against harm to others, and then there's three warnings about harm to ourselves, and then there's a descriptive, perhaps scarily descriptive warning. First, the initial warning. Look at verse 42. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him. Man, just pause. Like, what would you say after that? Is the first thing that comes to mind. For a great millstone were hung around his neck and were thrown into the sea. Oh, well, that's encouraging. Like, I mean, there's lots of words he could have said after that, but he chose some of the most serious, drastic things that he could possibly say, vivid and imaginative. But let us notice the link between verse 41 and 42. Whoever gives a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. It's positive, isn't it? It's compelling. But friends, if you mess with One of these little ones, he's not talking about kids. We are little ones. This is a word, it's a phrase that is used often, particularly in the other gospels, to describe the followers after Jesus. So it appears that Mark has has sort of kept the way that Jesus often talked about his disciples as his little ones. And he says, you mess with my little ones. Like you mess with that dude who is my disciple out there, casting out demons in my name to my glory. You want to mess with him by telling him to stop? And then he gives a a bit of a descriptive warning, right? 41 situates us positively, and 42 situates us negatively. This ought to make us very cautious of our effect upon other believers. It ought to set us down and, and humble ourselves for a moment. There are two parts to the warning. First, our sin, our pride, our contentiousness may very well be the thing which endangers these little ones. Perhaps it's the the bickering among the disciples and then their tribalism as they go to tell this man to stop that is putting that very man in danger as well as all those. Imagine you're the one who has been rescued in the name of Jesus and you're glorifying his name and somebody comes along and says, that shouldn't happen. That shouldn't happen. Perhaps it's our pride and contentiousness. Are we not ourselves Jesus' own little ones whom he himself is in these warnings warning against danger? Warnings are a good thing. They're not cruel. A descriptive nature of the danger that we're playing with is a kind thing to give to immature little ones. And that's what Jesus does here. He begins by calling us to guard against leading others into sin and destruction. And then he continues in three following warnings by guarding us from leading ourselves into sin and destruction. Jesus is caring for his little ones by warning us about the way that we treat his little ones, including ourselves in the next three warnings that we see. Let's first say what I hope you see is obvious beginning there in in verse 43. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Friends, 
That's called hyperbole. All right, maybe just a little bit of overstatement. There is no precedent in or prescription in all of Scripture for self-mutilation. All right, Jesus is making a point, which just tells us something about what Jesus was doing in that previous one, too. He's making a point, but that doesn't make the point not serious. He's speaking in hyperbole, but it doesn't make it not serious. It actually makes it very, very serious. Because what he says is true, absolutely realistically true, even if he's not actually teaching bodily mutilation. What does he say? If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off, because this is true. This is absolutely non-hyperbolically true. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands and go to hell. That's true. The point isn't cut off your hand. The point is do business with your God. Do business in the flesh with your God. Jesus is making a vivid point about the seriousness, particularly of sin in our flesh, in our embodiedness. Sin is destructive and dangerous and ought to be taken more seriously than we might ourselves otherwise have imagined. That means that this business that we do in the prayer of confession is serious business. It's curative business. Either do business in the prayer of confession or start doing bodily mutilation. I'm thinking I'm going to prayer of confession. There's serious business to be done. And he's calling us to humility, confession of sin, crying out for transformation in our bodies, in our minds, in our spirits, in the whole of our selves. That is, Jesus is making specifically, I think, in this passage, He's allowing us to acknowledge that there is, there is a hyperbole, but the point is what we do in the flesh with our hands, with our feet, with our eyes. I think that Jesus is making a connection between our physicality, our embodiedness, and our temptation. There is a connection between our bodies and our spiritual temptation hands, feet, and eyes. I was just telling my children this week, we were reflecting together in the morning. I was telling my kids, if you can't do something with your hands and with your feet and with your eyes, in our cultural moment, we get antsy, don't we? One of the things that we say in our our household is when one of the kids will say, I'm bored, we're like, and? (laughs) Like, is that so bad? You know that this is something that people have been for a long time? All of them survived. (laughs) But particularly in our cultural moment, if we're not doing something with our hands, with our feet, and with our eyes, like those three body parts in particular, we get stressed out. And I think what we tend to do is we tend to think, i got to do something with these things, so we start doing things that lead us off into temptation. We need activity and stimulation. And the world's like, oh, I got stuff for your hands, feet, and eyes to do. The world is is very ready to fill us up with a great deal of activity and stimulation. I think there's a particular warning for us here. We are embodied creatures with hands and feet and eyes and so much more. And it's good. But we're also spiritual creatures. And we ought to take care of how our 
hands and our feet and our eyes are being used in the wholeness of what we are. Sin in the flesh has a spiritual consequence. It's not just a a body thing. It's not just a temptation thing. It's a spiritual thing. We ought to take great precaution, even drastic precaution. Jesus is teaching a mastery of our bodies, to conform our bodies, our hands, our feet, and our eyes, and, and so our practices and our habits and our behaviors to the service of Christ against temptation and to a reveling in his glory and his way, to his service. If our bodies, our activity, and our attention are fixed upon the things of God, we are simultaneously guarding against destruction of both body and soul. Say it again. Listen. If our hands and our feet are busy with the things of God, if, if the Lord Jesus has, has our attention, he's caught, he has tempted us, drawn us, toward himself with our eyes and our attention, we are simultaneously being guarded against temptation in both our body and our soul. As enfleshed creatures, we do spiritual battle when we give Jesus the attention of our hands, our feet, and our eyes. We're not good at this, especially in a culture that is moving further and further into something of a disembodiedness. A lot of sitting around and using our eyes and our ears for our singular attention. Friends, in, in, in a disembodiedness, we will walk into a temptation. We will find ourselves antsy. And so we need to be busy. Right there in that moment when I was trying to coax my, my children into paying attention to the antsiness. And, and honestly, it's easy to think of these things when I'm teaching my kids. Because I was thinking about myself just like 10 seconds earlier. As I'm trying to coach myself and my kids about paying attention to the antsiness of their hands and their feet and their eyes, their quickness to want to rise up from what we were doing, what were we doing? Giving attention to the word and spending time in prayer. You see, it's in that place that we are using our hands. And we're using our feet and giving attention with our eyes to the Lord. And we're asking, Lord, do business here so that when I stand up and when I move around, whatever I give attention to, we give honor to you. Do war against temptation in that moment. It's a descriptive warning that Jesus tells us at the end of our passage. Look at it with me. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes and be thrown into hell. Verse 48. Where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. I have to tell you, I remember where I was and could probably tell you my age the first time I heard about a worm that does not die. All right? Terrified me. All right? This, the passage worked. Okay? It did its work. Now, I'm not sure about the methods of my Sunday school teacher on that particular day. Maybe failed to, to, to hold out before me the suffering and death of Jesus Christ in my place. So that is no longer for me. I have no longer have fear because I have Christ who has suffered that very thing for me. But I remember, it is descriptive and vivid 
one of the most vivid teachings of Jesus in and about hell. Jesus comes back to this by putting an exclamation point on this passage there in verse 48. Friends, it's true that we ought to be with one hand compelled by the Christian life, in the Christian life, by the grace of Jesus Christ in his suffering, death, and resurrection. This is true. We ought to be compelled. We ought to always have the gospel of grace in full view of our hands, feet, and eyes. But we can't truly, listen, we can't truly hold on to the true and actual gospel of grace and rescue without having a full understanding of the rescue that we've received. Do you understand the rescue that we've received? We have not only been loved into life, we've been rescued from death. Do we understand that? I'll tell you that a misunderstanding of that has gone so deep into what is supposed to be the Christian church today. At almost every level, I can tell you in my ordination sir, an examination 17 years ago, one of the examiners in the room told me I should be wary of telling people that they're sinners. I thought, from which are they being rescued? Where's the, re where's the joy? You see, I haven't seen heaven yet, so sometimes I have a hard time getting myself rightly excited and compelled. But I've seen death. And I've seen the destruction that sin does to my own body and soul. And warning works. We are right to be compelled and warned. And from that place, I say, oh, Jesus. I mean, it's why I cry more often than not when we're singing. You've rescued me. From what you suffered, what from what preface, what from what precipice have you saved me? That's grace. I think it's probably best to let R.C. Sproul give us a bit of the description of what those who originally heard this statement about the, the worm never dying. I think perhaps I would have done well to, to know a little bit of this myself when I was just a little kid. R.C. Sproul writes, In ancient Israel, during the reign of kings Ahaz and Manasseh in the southern kingdom of Judah, the people became involved in one of the worst of all pagan practices, the sacrifice of children to the pagan deity Molech. Now let's be clear. This isn't myth. This isn't an interesting story. This is something that when the people of God lose sight of the glory of God, and how far off they can get with their hands, feet, and eyes. They did this, sacrificing children. These sacrifices occurred, listen where? In a deep ravine south of Jerusalem, you know, where the temple's supposed to be. That ravine came to be called Gehenna, an English transliteration of the Greek form of the Aramaic word. This practice of sacrificing children was roundly condemned by the prophet Jeremiah and finally halted by King Josiah. Praise be to God. To make sure it didn't happen, they began with Josiah 
sought to desecrate the ravine where the sacrifices were made by turning it into a city garbage dump. The refuse from the city, including the carcasses of animals and even corpses of criminals, was carted out on a regular basis and tossed into the massive garbage dump called Gehenna. To keep the dump from overflowing, the refuse was regularly burned with fires constantly fed by the incoming garbage. Meanwhile, worms stayed busy devouring the carcasses of the animals and the criminals that were dumped in Gehenna. Eventually, Gehenna became a Jewish metaphor for the place of final punishment. Do you get the image? Our sin, our temptation, what we do with our bodies and hands and our, our feet is vividly being held up as worthy of being tossed into a garbage dump just outside of the city. Not these clean little garbage dumps that I like to go to once on a road after a big move. This place was filthy and disgusting. I think at risk of being overly simplistic in light of the description, we can say at least this. And friends, before, before we're distracted, like my own terrified heart, by discussion about the worm, what we need to hear is this, two things. Hell is real. Hell is real. Jesus taught it. Jesus taught about his suffering, his death, and his resurrection, and about the reality of hell. And secondly, hell is terrible. We don't talk about it enough to remember it's true. It's terrible. Like I could just summarize it that way. I know it's a bit simplistic, but we can also say this. Realistically, without clinging with our hands and our feet and our eyes with our whole bodies, might, right? Our heart, soul, strength. If we don't cling to the Lord with the whole of our bodies to have the rescue that we have secured for us in Christ, in light of the horror of hell, we ought to all the more rejoice in the glory of grace. You see, I, I, I think that this morning, in a message that sounds like, man, why don't we just kind of call it a day and go home? <laughs> I think that some of you could, should be saying, can we sing soon? I think I'm starting to see it. I think I'm starting to see why when Jesus talks about his suffering, his rejection, his death, I start to see what he suffered and the death that he received in my place. So when he secured life, it's not what we just got done talking about. We need to sing. You might have heard it said that hell is the absence of the presence of God. Friends, that is not a right understanding of Scripture. If we listen rightly to understand the holy nature of our God and the grace of his gospel, we have to understand this. Hell is not the absence of the presence of God. Hell is the holy and righteous presence of God in his wrath with no hope of mercy or grace. And this is Christ's warning. We ought, this ought to drive us, what? To a proclamation of grace. What age do we live in? We don't live in the age of hell. There is no hell on earth. 
There's a, we live in an age of grace where there needs to be a proclamation of grace because grace can still go where hell will reign. And we get to go with word of that grace. And the disciples wanted to stop a dude who was proclaiming it. Let's get ourselves humble underneath of what is really serious. There is one who has suffered in our place. He suffered the pain of hell. That is the righteous wrath of the Father. He died in our place. Worm, never going to see it. I'll never see it. He did that in my place. And he rose to victorious life to secure an eternal glorious life that compels me. Friends, it is a kindness and a power of Jesus' teaching that is held before us. And the call is simple. Lord, humble our hearts, everyone. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace. And Lord, may your grace get get kind of filled up this morning. May we get a, a, a greater view of grace. How many times have our parents rescued us from some precipice, from something that would have been dastardly broken in us, or, or some danger that would have left us scarred and marked for life. We were too young to even know it. We were so immature. On this day, we recognize that God, our Father, has been good. You have rescued us. And Lord, may that not only compel us to thanksgiving, but also to mission a mission that participates with all of your people, disciples of your name, proclaiming your grace, that all who are at risk of hell, including ourselves apart from grace, would have the proclamation of the gospel of grace over and over and in every place to which you would send us. Make that proclamation effective, Lord. Rescue from the clutches of temptation and hell and bring into your kingdom all the more of your family that we might rejoice together. Thank you, Lord. We pray these things in your good name. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.